is Corey. And I'm Katie King. And this is True, True Crime New England. England. What's up, everybody? Hello, welcome back to another episode. We are, as always, so happy to have you here joining us on this fine Thursday morning. This fine extra Thursday morning, because it is Leap Day. Leap Day. Wow. Can you believe it? Four years older for some. Did you know my mom was almost a Leap Day baby? Oh, really? Correct. Her birthday's tomorrow. And I guess she missed it by just a few hours. Oh, wow. Happy birthday, Pam Corey. Happy birthday, Mom. Almost to tomorrow. She's uh turning the big six zero. Really? Yes, ma'am. She's looking great. We love you, Mom slash Pam. I call her Pam sometimes. She doesn't like it. <laughs> but sometimes that's all, you know, you people. Sometimes that's the only way you can get their attention. Because that when you're an adult, they stop looking at you as, like, a child. So when you say mom, it's like, what? So I'm like, Pam, hello. <laughs> but she's, she's yes, she's turning 60, and she's actually, this weekend, she's having, like, a spa weekend. But at the end of next month, she's going to um, Italy with her sister and some friends to celebrate. So she's really going all out this year. Wow. Oh, that's as so fun. Yeah. Damn right. Yep, absolutely. So... Spend it well, Mom. But that being said, she was almost a leap day baby. So this episode today on a leap day special, an extra episode, extra f- not fun at all, actually. No, but extra important because it is unsolved yes. and it's out of Vermont. So yes. we thought we would do kind of a a bigger question mark not really, but definitely an unsolved case, just where it's a special Leap Day episode. We were in Vermont, and you guys can tell by the title, it is a disappearance. It's a pretty prominent case in the media, and I feel like a lot of people have probably heard about it or maybe know the idea of it. I know before this podcast, like, I had heard of it. It's definitely just one of those cases that's well-known. That being said, I think a lot of the details aren't well-known by most people. So I would recommend sticking around, listening in. It's very important. But before we get into that, we have an update as it is our bi-tenally episode swear jar roundup. I made that up, that bi-tenally, like bi-weekly, but bi-tenally. So Katie, would you remind us all about what organization we are donating to this round? Sure. So we will be giving money to Project Home Again, which provides furniture, decor, pillows, blankets, kitchen supplies, really anything that you might need to make a house a home. They provide everything free of charge to people in need, and they partner with social service agencies. They are based in Massachusetts, which is wonderful. And they provide everything to domestic violence survivors, extended families, veterans, refugees, people who have had their homes burned down, maybe Mm -hmm. they're transitioning out of drug and alcohol halfway houses, house infestations, anything, you name it. And they do everything free of charge. Um, I found them on TikTok, actually. It was this lovely woman voicing over a video, and she was very lovingly and painstakingly choosing items for, I think, a mom and her two girls, Mm. or her girl and a boy. 
Um, and she was saying like the little boy loves green and blue and dinosaurs and this comforter is perfect. And it was just very loving. And I could definitely tell that she loves what she does. Their volunteers are really good at like painstakingly choosing things that they know that their recipients will love and will really make their space feel like a home, which is so important. And I think that's not something that we think about. Yeah. So it was really cool to find them. And yeah, we will be donating a pretty good chunk of change to those guys. And Katie, you know, you say we will be donating a good chunk of change and you're right. And your efforts are for naught because (laughs) you are donating and I appreciate you very much. Unfortunately for me, per usual, I seem to, um, have not learned how to control my foul mouth, (laughs) which was the whole goal of this thing. You know, as most of you know, we started this in honor of my grandmother who did, when she was alive, told me she loved our podcast, but sure did wish I didn't say the F word so much. And so our goal was to, you know, when we did say it, donate. And I was going to try really to stop swearing as much. And I haven't. So Katie, would you mind just also updating everyone on our breakdown for this 10 episode stretch. Of course. So over the past 10 episodes, I have said the F word 23 times. So I will be donating $23 to Project Home Again, of course. Wonderful. And Liz doubled that amount and will be donating $46 for approximately 46 F words. Yeah. I'm, I'm sorry, Grammy. She's, I'm sure she's proud of me for other things, but This one, not so much. You know what? That's okay, because we can take our passion and sometimes, rightfully so, our anger (laughs) for some of these cases and translate it to doing some good in the true crime community. Because most of our organizations relate somewhere with New England or true crime. And, you know, we've done a couple that haven't and they've been perfect. And yeah, this one is just one that happened to be based in New England, and they'll be getting a total of $69, which I will bump up an extra dollar to make 70 just for a nice, even, kind, good, healthy round number. number. Yeah, yeah round, it. even number. Perfect. And then Liz found our new organization we will be donating to over the course of these next 10 episodes. Yes. And so... You guys, and we've talked about this before, Katie is so good at finding organizations, and I am just not. And I don't know why, because I would like to believe, I mean, I am a charitable person, as evidenced by how often I swear, <laughs> um, but I just have trouble finding good ones, and the ones I often do come up with are animal-related. Yeah. I don't know why. Well, okay, I do know why. I love animals. I literally, both of my cats are in view right now, and all I do is just stare at them the whole time we talk. I just love them so much. But anyway, the charity that we are going to be donating to this time around is actually a larger charity, but not super large. And it's not specifically New England based, but it is very important. It is America based. So that's where true crime New England takes place. So that counts, right? So I was actually talking with my wonderful boyfriend, Elijah, and he was helping me kind of go over. I was like, I need nonprofits. I'm struggling. And he was like, well, what about Canines for Warriors? And I was like, well, that I think I can figure out what that is. But is what is that? And he told me and I looked it up and I was like, I love this because this is great. Elijah himself is a veteran and I love him more than anything. So I was like, this is great. Basically, as you can probably tell from the title, it's an organization that helps veterans get dogs. 
service dogs. And as I was going through their website, I was like, this is amazing because as most of us know, while us Americans sure do love our soldiers and our veterans, and we all are like, you know, we love, we support, we really let them slip through the cracks once they're out of the service. I don't know why. And so a lot of people who have served suffer from PTSD, traumatic brain injuries, a lot of physical injuries that they just can't afford to get taken care of, all this stuff, a lot of homelessness, things like that. So Canines for Warriors helps pair trained service dogs with veterans, which is awesome. A lot of these dogs are rescue dogs, which is awesome. I love that. You know, I'm a big believer of adopt, don't shop as, you know, it's just so important because there's more rescue animals and shelters that need it versus like breeders. Um, I will not dox you if you get a dog or a cat from a breeder because I get it, but I think it's really important for, you know, those animals that already exist out there. And I, I love a good old dog. Love them. So regardless, this organization is fantastic. So according to one of their studies, 82% of their participants uh, reported decreased in suicidal ideation, which I thought was wonderful and really important as someone who, of course, loves a veteran and cares very deeply how they feel. I think it's just so important. So this 10 episode stretch, we are going to be donating to Canines for Warriors. And as per usual, we always encourage you guys to check out their website, which is caninesforwarriors.org. And if you have the means and the desire, you are encouraged, of course, to donate. But there are other ways you can support them. You can, if you have the means to do it, you can apply to train a dog, which I think is awesome. That is something if I didn't live in a one-bedroom apartment, oh, oh, I'd have so many. I'd have so many dogs. Oh, it's disgusting how many dogs I would have. Oh, and you can also, if you know someone maybe who has puppies that they can't take care of or a dog maybe that they can't take care of anymore, you can donate your dog to this program, which I think is wonderful. So that is who we'll be donating to this round. And I already can tell because I'm very passionate about it. I will swear so much. And I hate it, but I love to hate it. So we will be counting that up for the next 10 episodes. And episode 141, we will have the total for you and the next organization, which will not be animal related, probably. <laughs> we have had this case on our list for a while. And very recently, Darlene C., suggested this to us via our email, and George S. suggested it to us via our website submission tool. So thank you guys so much. Thank you. And George S. recently bought us two coffees each, times two after our previous two episodes. So thank you, George. Thanks, George. Appreciate ya. And without further ado, today we will be covering The, the Disappearance of the Reaps. Okay, Katie. Just because it's Leap Day, Katie, I think it still would be appropriate if you gave me your sources so the lovely listeners could hear where we got all this wonderful information. I agree. We cannot be leaping over where we got our information. We have to cite our sources. <laughs> that was good. Thank you so much. I was waiting for that. That was really good. I got information from NAMAS, which is the National Missing and Unidentified Persons System. 
hngn.com, Whereabouts Still Unknown WordPress, Rutland Herald, WFTV, Unresolved Mysteries Reddit thread, Web Sleuths, and julianawoodworth.com, which is a website by Grace's sister. Amazing. I also use the Whereabouts Still Unknown blog. I use the most likely same Unresolved Mysteries Reddit thread. I use the Resource Center for Cold Case Missing Children's Cases, the Vermont State Police website, the Charlie Project, and I use the Porchlight International for the Missing and Unidentified. So Katie, let's get into it. And as per usual with these stories, what we're going to do is kind of set the background so we can set you guys up. And I'm, what I'm doing with my gesturing here that you can't see is kind of like I'm setting a volleyball and I'm going to spike it over to your side. Sports references. That's it. That's the only sports reference you'll ever hear me say. And I don't know why I chose volleyball. Because I would do anything in high school gym class to get out of that. And any part of high school gym class. And Katie can attest because she was in both years of my high school gym (laughs) class. All right. Let's talk about the beginning of the Reap family. In August of 1965... Michael Eugene Reap, already a hot name, who was 20, married a beautiful young woman named Grace Marie Canto. She was 19, and they married in Stonington, Connecticut. Per usual, not super much is known about the couple. What we do know is that they were young, and according to what I could tell, everything seemed fine. Like it was, they were young, cute, love it. In March of 1967, The couple welcomed their first son, Brian. Three years later, in August of 1970, the couple welcomed their second son, Patrick. And three years after that, the couple welcomed their third and final child, a little girl, finally, named after their mother, Gracie. About 10 years after they had married, so they had already had their children, they had moved themselves from Connecticut all the way to Jericho, Vermont. Quiet, quaint little town. The couple got a house here on a 10-acre plot of land on Hanley Lane, and Michael began a job as an air traffic controller at the Burlington Airport. Everything seems real status quo here. 10-acre piece of land, you cannot find that for jack crap at this point. And I'm sure it was probably like $4 back then. (laughs) Unfair. (laughs) So after the kids were born and they began to grow up, it kind of seemed like something started to shift in their relationship. I feel like we see this a lot in these cases like this is where everything seems kind of good and then kids are born and stress kind of builds up for some reason. Maybe Grace knew this, maybe she didn't, but Michael had been having some quiet extramarital affairs and it seemed like for a while and it seemed like there was more than one. And again, I don't really know how or why because he seemed like kind of a sketchy character at this point, at least, and he wasn't exactly the most charming, wonderful dude. So I don't know how these men can always get so much extra pipe if they're disgusting. But it, it was happening. And I think, you know, it kind of put him into a weird assholey mood a lot that he was having these extramarital affairs and then coming home to his actual wife. It just put strain on their relationship. And again, I don't know if Grace knew, but... For whatever reason, I think she could tell something was off because he kind of shifted. And then one day in 1977, it was November, Michael just randomly disappeared. And this is so strange. 
Now, he had left a note just for his wife, and he ex- he explained in this note, to be fair, he did explain, that he had left to go work. And he had said he left to work for the CIA. He was being undercover now. This was his job. And we don't know much about Michael, but to me, this sounds completely like a lie. Just guessing. In the same note, Michael gave Grace power of attorney, which also just very sudden and random and also seems a little suicidal to me. Not even a week later, when he was supposed to be doing undercover work for the CIA, which of course, you know, people usually who do air traffic control, the next natural step is going into the CIA. That's pretty often how it goes in their careers. Michael called the Jericho house phone and he was crying, begging to come home. And Grace, because she was a sweet, forgiving angel, allowed him to come home and took him right back in. Maybe it was because she was a sweet, loving angel. Maybe it was also because she needed the help because her kids missed their dad. Could be for a whole bunch of reasons. Whatever it was, no fault to her own. He was just, I think a lot of it was that he was mentally ill. Or just a dick. By some miracle, for Michael, his job at the Burlington airport allowed him to come back, but... He had to go to some counseling in order to come back, and he had to continuously get the counseling in order to stay. We don't really know where Michael went in this week where he was undercover, quote-unquote. I speculate he went somewhere involving one of his affairs, and then he realized it clearly wasn't going to last, and then he was like, oh my god, this isn't going to work, so he played a big baby and then wanted to come home. That's my speculation. And he probably had every intention of continuing to have extramarital affairs behind his wife's back, just still doing it from home. Like, he realized running away wasn't the move. So he just was like, okay, I'll come home, stay with the wife, live there, have my job back, but I'll still go sleep with these women, you know? And then after that, there was no way things were normal in the household. It was this strange air, like obviously Grace knew he lied because there's no way he was actually working for the CIA and the children were growing and all this, you know, tensions were still rising. And even though he was going to see counseling and he still had a job, it just was something was up and things started to get kind of weird as the time went on. And unfortunately, it just got worse. Fast forward to Memorial Day weekend of 1978, when Grace's mother, Philomena Canto, visited the family at their home. She also brought with her gifts for Grace's sister, Juliana. And this was the last time that Grace and Gracie were seen by any of their relatives aside from the two sons and Michael. On June 6th, 1978, the boys were at school when Grace left a note saying that she was taking Gracie and leaving and wasn't planning on coming back. But the only thing off about that, well, a lot of things are off about this, <laughs> but one of the first things that are off about this is that only Michael saw this note. Right. This alleged note. 11-year-old Brian Reeve, the oldest son, said that Grace made breakfast for him and 8-year-old Patrick before sending them off to school. And this was the last day of school, so the boys remember this day very clearly. Like, they're so excited. Sure. They're like, wow, we're at summer vacation. We can't wait. You know, school is going to be so much fun. And they came home from school and nobody was home. Right. 
And they didn't really start to worry until after Michael got home at about four o'clock in the afternoon. And he told them that Grace and Gracie had gone on a vacation. Mm. And they immediately knew that something was suspicious because number one, their mom and their little sister would not go on a vacation without them. Right. Number two, they would have seen them like packing or like a suitcase or like they would have told them there would have been communication. This just was, this didn't happen. Mm. The disappearances were not reported to police until June 11th, and the only reason that Michael even reported them missing was because Grace's sister, Juliana, kept calling the house and asking to speak with Grace. Michael had said to police that he'd worked the night shift before the disappearances, had come home, gone to sleep, didn't wake up until the next morning, which, like, what did you do? Sleep for 24 hours? (laughs) Like, Yeah, it's kind of, it just does not... No matter what way he was phrasing it, it didn't match up. And it also made him look like a bad father because it was like, oh, you slept through. You didn't take care of your, oh, okay. Like, it just did not add up no matter what you said. Exactly. And then police also did not buy this because they found out that Michael called out from work sick on the day that he claimed he was at work working the night shift. Oh. Hmm. Then something real suspicious happened. And this is like, he could have waited for this just a little bit longer to make it look a little less suspicious, but he did not hold back. Exactly 10 days after his wife and daughter, quote, left voluntarily, Michael Reap filed for divorce from Grace. Yeah, 10 days. So they could still be on vacation, right? Maybe they took a really long vacation. Maybe they went on a cruise. Maybe they went on a two-week cruise, and these two girls were just having the time of their lives on a carnival cruise. I don't know if those existed back in the 78. And this might be something where my mom texts me and says, of course carnival cruises existed in 78. Come on, Elizabeth. But I don't know. Regardless, that is a very short timeline to suddenly just be like, yeah, this is over. What? Especially after he left a little note saying, I'm going to go work for the CIA. Bye. Okay, what? His reasoning for divorce, of course, was desertion and, quote, intolerable severity. What? Like, that is desertion A. I don't think you can fairly say that because it's been 10 days. That's a very short period of time to say you've been deserted. And also, what do you mean intolerable severity? Sounds like Grace was a lovely woman, truly, who loved her kids and was a very good mother. And honestly, she put up with a lot. She was tolerating a lot of his shit. Right. And he's the one that's having all these affairs left and right. Like, he sounds intolerable. <laughs> yeah. Pod calling kettle. Literally. Additionally, Michael had admitted to having several extramarital affairs while married to Grace, which, of course, makes him seem like the dickwad. Not that that was kind of hard to tell. Then, Michael claimed that the reason she had left the boys behind was because Grace herself had been having an affair. Shock factor, right? She left the sons because they had known about this affair They were older, you know, five is pretty young. Gracie probably couldn't comprehend something like that. But the boys were eight and 11. So if they had known Grace was having an affair, they could probably, you know, rebel, tell their dad, etc. So she didn't want to take them with her. Okay, 
that doesn't make any sense either. Why leave them with their dad? To be like, she went on vacation? No way, dad. She she was sleeping with another man. What? Like, I don't... What? All this, without a doubt, super suspicious. Once Grace had been reported missing, once Gracie had been reported missing, and then Michael filed for divorce, and... Grace's sister was like, hey, I haven't heard from my sister and my niece in a long time. The police, you know, checked it out with Michael and they were like, hey, man, it's crazy. Your wife and daughter left. Take it easy. And then they classified it as not suspicious. They were like, couldn't care less. Oh, you found a note? I believe you. Bye. That's it. They just could not care less. And I can't believe it. Well, I can, but it's this is so suspicious. Right. And Grace's sister, Juliana, and her other family members, like her parents, just kept insisting to police that Grace would have never abandoned her sons. And they also were saying that Grace was abused on multiple occasions by Michael. And despite this, police were like, yeah, that sucks. Yeah, right. And so because the police never classified it as suspicious, the media outlets never reported on the disappearances because they technically weren't considered disappearances. So Juliana herself had to take it upon herself to take out personalized, paid ads in local newspapers. She was handing out flyers. She was reaching out to multiple different agencies for help. And the Burlington Free Press actually refused to publish photos of Grace and Gracie because the police, again, never said they were officially missing. So in August, Juliana took out an ad in the classified section of the Burlington Free Press that said, quote, Grace, call your sister Julie. A month later, Juliana was distributing missing persons flyers in Vermont, surrounding states, and even along the Canadian border. She really took it upon herself, and she should not have had to. That's the sad part, is clearly something was wrong, and she still had to do all this. Like, the police once again failed a family here. Awful. And then Michael, meanwhile, is sending Juliana a bunch of letters. Like, letters about his job, telling her thank you for gifts that she had gotten the boys, and then venting about his missing wife and daughter. In one letter, he wrote, quote, Some days I really hurt, and other days I am just darn mad. I have to tell myself that Grace and Gracie are happy and getting along, but I would give anything I owe just to talk to them, even on the phone, for two minutes. He also, in a letter, wrote to Juliana that, again, Grace was having an affair, and... The sons were like, I don't want to go with you, mom. You're a cheater. It's like, this man is repulsive. If you couldn't tell already from, I don't know, like the first couple minutes of us telling the story. He is really repulsive. And then Juliana, again, is reaching out to all these different organizations. She reached out to the Social Security Administration in April of 1979 to try and trace her sister's whereabouts. And then Social Security informed her and they were like, we don't have any record of her using her number after June 6th. Yeah. Which is really not good because if she's out and about, how is she getting a job? How is she getting income? How is she Mm -hmm. providing for herself and Gracie. Like, this is all not adding up. And I think we all can tell where this is going. Easily. In July of 1979, exactly about a year after Grace and Gracie have disappeared, Michael's divorce, his petition is finally finalized. Good for him. Wow. And in October of 1979, Michael gets a building permit from the town to have the garage under his house closed in and turned into a living space, and have a new garage built. That's convenient and nice. Wow. 
This is only important because many people believe that Michael used the new garage to possibly cover up where he may have disposed of Grace and Gracie's bodies. Yeah, that could definitely be it. In November of 1979, which was only about three months after he officially divorced from Grace, Michael married his children's former babysitter, 26-year-old Donna Rousen. Now, I was always picturing at this point Michael being like 40. He was like 34, maybe 35. So he wasn't super old, but still so wrong. It's really skeezy. This is the family's young babysitter. Yeah. And he probably had known her since she was like a teenager, you know? Oh, so gross. Turns out, Donna had actually been one of Michael's many extramarital affairs while he was married to Grace. So they had been together for a while. And he probably had been cheating on her as well. And at one point during their affair, and I believe it was while Grace was still around, Michael had gotten Donna pregnant, nice, and took her to get an abortion in order to keep it all hush-hush. Great. Awesome. That's cool of you, Michael. Probably better for Donna, because she did not need to have that horrible attachment to Michael. But now she was married to him, so this poor, oh, it's just awful. She's, oh, just terrible. I feel for her, but I don't at the same time, you mm-hmm. know, she married him. But she was young. Maybe she didn't know. I don't know. It's all bad. In 1981, there was a nationwide strike, and Michael lost his job as an air traffic controller at the Burlington Airport. And after Michael married Donna, he took his sons and moved to Florida in May of 1983, and I believe it was clearly hoping to escape any more questions about his missing ex-wife and his missing daughter. And at this point, Gracie would have been 10 years old. So she had been missing for quite some time. Her mom had been missing for quite some time. And at this point, there had been more ads put out by Grace's sister and some probing by her done, you know, asking police, please help us, you know. But still, it seemed as though the police just were not taking it seriously. They were like, this is not suspicious. I'm sorry. She went on vacation five years ago. Please leave it alone. It's like, what? She went on vacation five years ago and never came back? And that's not suspicious to you? She left her sons? Okay. At this point, Juliana had joined the Grottentown, Connecticut Police Department as a dispatcher and spent the next three years using all of her spare time to try and find any information pointing towards the whereabouts of her sister and her niece. She also read any bulletin she could get her hands on on unidentified bodies, which is horrific. Yes. Horrific, because she is combing through bulletins online, doing whatever she can, Mm -hmm. and hoping that she can use kind of her in as a dispatcher to help identify potentially the bodies of her sister and her niece. Yeah. Yeah. And in 1986, the remains of a woman and a child were found in a state park in Allenstown, New Hampshire, which is a very famous case. And Juliana forwarded police Grace's dental records in the hopes that, not hopes is a strong word, but like maybe she could help identify her and like maybe this could be her sister and her niece and it was not a match. In the summer of 1987, Vermont State Police finally asked for Juliana's permission to reopen a missing persons case and the old Reap's home and surrounding rural property were searched. The searches continued a year later but slowed way down when nothing was really found. Police then began interviewing Grace's friends and spoke to Judy Thibault, 
who then said that she had visited the Reap home about a week before Grace and Gracie disappeared. Judy said that while she was visiting with Grace, she had noticed Michael just, you know, casually digging a massive hole in the backyard. Oh. Yeah. Just, you know. Classic. She said that she had actually joked around with him about whether he was digging a grave, which looking back on that, I'm sure she was horrified. Yeah. Grace told her that he was just doing some landscaping, but Judy said that she noticed that Grace was acting really off and even described her as acting like a zombie, like really flat affect, either very depressed or preoccupied or just really having a hard time. Yeah. Another friend of Grace's, a woman named Sylvia Nall, said that Grace had left Michael before, but had only stayed away from him for one night before going back, likely for the kids. And Sylvia said that she didn't believe that Grace would have left him permanently because she was trying to save their marriage, again, for the kids. Exactly. In the following year or so, the police were able to do an exterior search of the Reap homestead, which, of course, was not occupied by any member of the Reap family, because if you'll remember, in 1983, Michael took his new young wife Donna and the boys to Florida, avoiding any and all talk of his missing wife and daughter, who had gone on a five-plus-year vacation. Not at all bizarre. It wasn't until the late 80s when Juliana was able to get in touch with her nephew, Brian, who was now a young adult, that they were able to talk about his mom and his sister. She also learned that after a relatively short marriage, Michael and Donna had actually gotten a divorce. What a lucky woman to actually have made it out of that marriage alive. Because with, you know, with Grace, didn't seem too likely that maybe Donna would also make it out of there. Brian and his aunt, Juliana, of course, were able to meet in Florida, which was both emotional and, I hope, a little healing for them. Juliana gave as much detail as she could about what she had found to Brian, and Brian also gave Juliana as much information from that day as he could for his aunt. I believe what had really happened was he had not been allowed to talk to his aunt for that long because he had been a child and then a teenager, and his dad had taken him away and said, okay, you're going to Florida, and that's it. That's it. You cannot talk to anyone. And then it wasn't till, I mean, this was the 80s, so it wasn't like they had Facebook or whatever. So it was a lot harder to find people, especially if they moved across the country. So when they were able to connect, it was great, really. It was it was very good for the both of them. The case continued to flatline for years, unfortunately. Occasional small searches of the property in Jericho turned up nothing. No clues, no evidence, no nothing. It just seemed like it had flatlined completely. And tragedy just kept coming in the direction of Brian and just awful stuff. In May of 1996, Michael and Grace's middle son, Patrick, died of complications of the flu while he was in Germany. He was only 25. Awful stuff. I don't even know how that happens. I mean, in, yeah, okay, in, 2024, you don't really die of the flu anymore unless you're immunocompromised or you're in a third world country. It's very rare that it happens in modern medicine, but so sad. 25 years old. Some people I saw in like the red thread were like, this is very suspicious. What did Michael do to him? And I was like, okay, he was in Germany. Right. Let's like, please, people die of the flu. Like it happened. It does happen. And it is important to note that at this time, Michael was remarried for a third time. 
Ironically, her name was Donna as well. Not the same Donna, of course, but a different Donna. And in 1996, very shortly after Patrick Reap died, the disappearance of Grace and Gracie was reclassified as a homicide. Finally, now, this long, over 20 years, it was finally found to be suspicious. Their 20-year vacation was now suspicious. Finally. On October 21st, 1996, the Jericho home and surrounding 10 acres were searched by Vermont State Police, the FBI Evidence Response Team, four cadaver dogs, and other investigators. A day later, Michael Reap was contacted, still in Florida, by WPTZ-TV, and this is where he tells interviewers that he was surprised that police were digging up the property, and he then said to them that his wife and daughter left voluntarily and that he always expected his daughter would make contact again. Mm -mm. On October 23rd, the Vermont State Police contacted Juliana to notify her that they did not find anything on their search. Three days later... On October 26th, Michael left his Jupiter, Florida home with just a toothbrush and his cigarettes in his 1994 gray Isuzu pickup truck with Florida plate JJZ55G. His now third wife, also Donna, as we've established, mm. neglected to file a police report. Very interesting, I find. Mm-hmm. Clearly no one he was married to liked him very much. Correct. What did they see in him? Truly. Like, I want to know. He didn't have money, right? So what was his... Besides his, like, did they think that they would maybe get a 20-year vacation out of this? I don't understand. Like, it's just so bizarre. Michael actually wasn't reported missing until November 13th when Brian notified the Palm Beach County Sheriff's Department. Investigators then traced Michael to New Orleans just a couple of days after he left his Jupiter, Florida home, and they found his pickup truck abandoned at the New Orleans airport on December 4th. He also made a transaction at an ATM in New Orleans on the day of his disappearance, but there were no other trace of him, and it seemed like he too had just vanished into thin air for a while. He was taking a vacation. It's fine. There's nothing suspicious about that. Ugh. On January 13th, 1997, at 4.45 p.m., Juliana received a phone call from Michael's third and technically current wife, Donna Lee. After Juliana answered, Donna said she had the wrong number and hung up. On February 8th, Michael's mommy, Jessie Waugh, called Juliana and asked if there were any new developments in the case, and then she mentioned that she hadn't heard from Michael, and she also went on to say that she thought that Michael could not have been responsible for the murders of Grace or Gracie. Hmm. Juliana said that her impressions of this phone call were really off like she wasn't sure whether jesse was calling out of genuine concern or if michael was like whispering in her ear hey call juliana and see what she knows call juliana and see if she knows anything right because juliana is like the primary contact now for police like police yeah. are reaching out to her giving her updates right she is hounding these police officers like hey any updates don't let this case fall through the cracks what are any leads when when's the next search i'll be there mm -hmm. call me keep me posted like she's on it she is yeah. on top of shit on August 2nd, 1997, Brian flew up to Burlington, Vermont from Florida to meet Juliana and the rest of their family. They all walked around the old Reap home to see if anything would click in Brian's mind, and they also met there with police. Three days later, Brian was hypnotized to see if he would be able to remember anything. An old police tactic, that's for sure. 
In December of 1997, which was now a whole year after Michael drove his car to New Orleans and disappeared, or took a vacation, as you were, Juliana now had two presumption of death certificates signed for both Grace and Gracie. Over the course of the next several years, countless more searches were done on the property, and, you know, these searches involved cadaver dogs, air searches, and, of course, excavations. It was a 10-acre property, so there was some ground to cover. On May 1st and 2nd, 2000, a specialized FBI team, assisted by the Vermont State Police, returned to the Reap home and spent the next two days searching the property using state-of-the-art remote imaging equipment. A psychic also reached out to Juliana, and they eventually met and went to the Reap's home, and Juliana felt as though the experience was really positive, and that at this time they were making a lot of headway in the investigation. Over the next several years, investigation and searches of the home and property turned up a camera, a doll's head, and a shotgun shell in a nearby pond that had been drained, and it's unsure whether these items are connected to the case. Finally, in June of 2006, despite not knowing his whereabouts, an arrest warrant was issued for Michael Reap in the murder of his wife, Grace, and his daughter, Gracie. The charges were for one count of first-degree murder and one count of second-degree murder. And this is great, because finally it's recognized by the law that Grace and Gracie are almost certainly, without a doubt, dead. And it was at the hands of Michael. However, this only goes so far when the man responsible isn't paying for what he's done. So for years after he's vanished, the man has gotten away for even longer. He's, you know, it seems like he's on the lamb, like he has been free and he's not paying for what he's done. There's no justice for this woman and her daughter who have been, truthfully, they've been dead for so long, almost 30 years. Like it's insane. That is until something crazy happened. Now I have a little story for you guys. Just a little one. And it takes place in 1997. On January 10th, 1997, in Yuma, Arizona, it was about 1.45 p.m., when a man approached another man at gunpoint while he was at the Two Rivers feed store. The armed robber stole his car and all of this guy's money. Thankfully, the victim was able to escape unharmed as he was still in the car with the armed robber as he drove off with the car. The victim then quickly called for help and ex- you know, explained the situation. The local police and border control were able to quickly launch a massive search for the perpetrator. They located him quickly. They were able to corner the gunman at an overpass. He was still in the car. They got him like they were like, okay, get out of the car with your hands up right now when they heard a gunshot and... The man who had held the guy at gunpoint, stole his car, had shot himself in the head. That man was known as John Doe for the longest time. He was buried in an unmarked grave in Arizona, but his fingerprints were taken. They were entered into a police database, and that was it. There was no matches. It was just this guy who didn't have an ID. Nothing was known about him. He just was a one-time offender, stole a guy's car, and then shot himself in the head when cornered like a little pussy boy. And that was it. Apparently, there was some misinformation labeled on the fingerprints, but once this was discovered in 2010, so this was 13 years later, the Yuma Police Department reached out to the FBI for help, and with this assistance, they were able to track down the real identity of John Doe. And using fingerprints from a military record, 
the unidentified gunman in 1997, wouldn't you know it, was identified as Michael Reap over 13 years after his death and four years after an arrest warrant was issued for the murders of his ex-wife and young daughter. So this whole time, almost virtually as soon as he disappeared, he had been dead. So when Julian had received a phone call from his mother, she was thinking maybe he's behind all this. No, he was dead. And I would have thought that too. But no, he had been dead the whole time. And I think it's not satisfying. Nothing about this is satisfying. But the fact that he killed himself, yeah, that about sums it up. Because he was guilty of a lot of things at that point. No doubt. But I hate, hate, hate that he will never pay for what he did. And we all know what he did. And his actions after his disappearance, like fleeing from Florida with only his toothbrush and his cigarettes, and his third wife, Donna, probably being in on it, Mm -hmm. not reporting him missing. Then Brian reports him missing weeks later. Mm -hmm. He fled to New Orleans, bounced around. Clearly, he doesn't care about his actions at this point. He knows that he's guilty. He thinks that because the FBI at this point was digging up his old property, that they were ultimately going to find the bodies of Grace and Gracie. So he just, not a care in the world, he panicked, exactly. And now that he was dead, Michael's second wife and the former family babysitter, Donna, Donna number one, technically second wife, came forward and said that Michael was extremely physically abusive towards her. She said that on one occasion he was beating her so badly that she was like laying on the floor, just absolutely convinced that she was going to die. Until a family member arrived at the home just in time and Michael played it off. Oh my god. She also said that Michael would make comments to her, one of which that he often threw around was, quote, you don't physically fight back like Grace did. Mm. Which proves what Grace's family were saying when she originally disappeared. And they were telling police, like, she did not just voluntarily leave like there's something wrong she wouldn't abandon her kids michael was beating the shit out of her she's abused there's a reason that she's no longer here like you need to help us yeah so he clearly was extremely abusive and clearly not just to grace right it was also revealed that benjamin reap michael's dad was the prime suspect in the murder of his wife wanda back in 1988 and brian stated the apple doesn't fall far from the tree yikes Benjamin Reap said that he and his wife, Wanda, were the victims of a kidnapping on Friday, August 26th, 1988, and he said that a black male kidnapped them from a donut shop, and that his wife ended up brutally murdered, and then her body was disposed of in a canal. Police pretty quickly determined that the physical evidence was way off, and there was motive, as Benjamin had financial gain from the house and insurance after Wanda's death. And they also feel like Benjamin didn't act alone. Mm. He died at the age of 87 and was serving a three-year sentence for committing a lewd and lascivious act on a child under the age of 12 at the time of his death. Thanks. So not only is he a murderer, he's a racist for trying to blame <laughs> it on a black guy. Yeah. And he's a pedophile. So yeah. he's like the whole trifecta. Right. But yeah, that is what created Michael. Right. So I think Brian is spot on with the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, which is so fucked up. Absolutely. Totally. Brian is now a dad to three kids himself and tries to travel back to Vermont when he's able to. He actually became a single dad after his wife died in a car accident. Tragedy follows this man everywhere. I feel so bad for him. He just... 
it's like one thing after another. I, I can't even imagine. And now he has to raise three kids by himself. Yeah. But he still tries to travel back and forth to Vermont when he's able to with Juliana, who I yeah. believe is still in Connecticut or at least somewhere local in New England. Yeah. He and Juliana also believe that Michael killed Grace during an altercation. Like, he and Grace got into a fight. Maybe Grace was confronting him about one of his many affairs, maybe with the babysitter, maybe with just something off. Um, But they think that they got into a fight. And especially with that statement where Donna, the second wife, said, you don't fight back like Grace does. Right. It might have been a physical fight. And then he killed Grace. And then Gracie was murdered because she was a witness. Like, she might have just come into the room Mm -hmm. as he was hurting Grace. Mm -hmm. And Juliana and Brian both think that the bodies are somewhere on the property. In a later interview, Brian stated, quote, I keep having visions and memories of leaves that shifted. I want to spend time with a metal detector and go around and see if I can't pick up mom's wedding ring or jewelry or something. I have a good feeling about where they are in the woods. I need to find my mom and sister. I just do. There have been 25 digs done on the property since 1996 alone. And while none of them have found anything yet, I think that Juliana and Brian are absolutely onto something. Like we said, the property is 10 acres. That's a lot of ground to cover. And I think that especially where Michael fled the state and was like panicking, acting erratically once he learned that the FBI were digging up the property. Yeah. That really tells me that there is something, even if it's not their bodies, there is some kind of damning evidence buried on that property. A hundred percent. So I really, really hope that Brian and Juliana are successful. I think that they completely have the right idea. And yeah. I just, I really hope that we, we all hope that unsolved cases are unsolved, but this is one that I really, especially would like to see solved in our lifetime. Yeah. So anyone with any information on the murders of Grace and Gracie Reap is asked to please call the Vermont State Police at 802-244-8781. Yes. An insane case. One that I 100% agree I would absolutely love to see solved because it deserves to be solved. And that is the disappearance and most likely murder of Grace Reap and her daughter Gracie Reap. Most likely at the hands of the awful Michael Reap. Man, guys, we always want to know what you think. Did you know about this case beforehand? Most likely, but we want to know your thoughts and your opinions. Do you think Michael did it? Do you think they went on a vacation? No, we know you didn't think that, because that would be insane. Please let us know your thoughts and your feelings. You can find us on Instagram at truecrimene. All lowercase. Or you can send us an email at truecrimene at gmail.com. We also have a website, truecrimene.com. You could go to our contact page and use our handy dandy submission tool to send us your thoughts on this case, other cases we have covered, questions, comments, concerns. You can also send us cases that we could cover in the future. You can leave your name if you so choose. You can, of course, be anonymous that way as well. But regardless, we would love to hear from you. And we really appreciate you guys listening, especially for cases like today. And yeah, happy leap day. Yes, happy leap day. We hope this episode fulfilled any extra leap day thoughts you may have. I don't know. It's an extra episode, technically, so... I'm glad we were able to do it. Absolutely. And with that, we'll see you next week. Bye. Goodbye.